rugby is a great game, but as my next guest argues, it's rotten to the core and needs to be changed from the top down. Obviously, rugby takes a huge physical and psychological toll on players. It's a dream come true for the few who make it to the upper echelons of the game, but for those left behind or have their careers cut short, it's a different story. If you haven't already worked out who it is from the episode title, my next guest is Dan Tooley. Also rugby legend and all-round great bloke, which is probably why we get on so well. You'll remember Dan as he spent seven and a half seasons at Ulster and won 11 caps for Ireland. He's fondly remembered as an abrasive, hard-working second row who played in a great Ulster side alongside the likes of Johan Muller, Ron Pienaar and John Ford and the three. Three was a major figure in the team for some very important years at Ulster, however his departure was the first in a mass exodus of retirements and dismissals at Ulster. Dan has loot to say in this interview and is a straight talker, man who tells it like it is. Indeed, having had his playing days cut short following a horrendous injury while playing in France, Dan announced his retirement in a two-page essay on Twitter which went viral. Here he goes into more detail about the highs and lows of life as a professional rugby player and provides a unique insight into the way rugby is changing, perhaps not for the better. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Yeah, it's great to have you, and thank you so much for for joining. With the you're whole welcome. It's it's always it's always important to give people the time, especially when you're sort of new to the podcast. Anyway, yeah, you know? yeah, you know, okay. it's important that you know you help people out and stuff. I think it's I think it's good to to find out a bit more about players and guys who have just started, but also guys who have come to the end uh, of their playing careers and hearing about the transition out of that as well and what that looks like for people and that's that's the whole point of of what I'm doing and I suppose the best way to do it maybe is is to work our way sort of uh, chronologically through sort of mm-hmm. your your career and maybe hear a bit about how you develop the passion for the game so. And the other thing as well, of course, is your your statement whenever you uh, called an end to your playing career as well went pretty viral. And I think people would be really interested to hear a bit more about that. You talked talk about the fact whenever a lot of players retire, they say, oh, I loved every second of the game. And uh, it can't be true for everyone. And as you say in yours, there's there's highs and lows uh, in a rugby career. There's 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 a lot of positives and negatives to take away from it. But we can come back back to that, I suppose. Um, but I suppose the first thing to ask you is is where did it all begin for you, and what gave you your your passion for rugby? What made you so, fall in love with it? Um, we'll go back to the start. I actually was. Um, we were come from a huge football family, so we would play. Football was a massive part of my life ever since I started competitively playing since I was five. So I was a pretty decent footballer, had a few trials with Southampton and Bristol City, but you know I was good as a local footballer. But then when you reach out to a wider range of people, if you like, it sort of became a little bit more evident I wasn't as good as I needed to be to become yeah. at top, top level. So yeah. um that was a big disappointment for us and our family because we, you know, so I started playing football as five. So for 12 years, we, we genuinely thought that I was going to make it and potentially kick on or, or, or certainly give myself a decent shot. That wasn't yeah. going to be, to be honest. So I was playing a bit of men's football at seven, 16, 17 and um, at college, not really doing a great deal. And uh, a lot of my friends actually were members at Western Rugby Club at the time. And... Um, I remember I'd been out the night before. So the Colts would play under 19s, as it were, in England. They play on the Sunday at the time. And uh, my mate rang me up and said, You fancy a game? And I yeah. said, Listen, 
I was out, <laughs> I've just been out, but I'll come on down and uh, just stick me on the wing and I'll, I'll fill in the numbers. So I played on the, played on the Sunday, really enjoyed it. And then from there on in, I did a bit of Saturday, a bit of Sunday, football on Saturday, rugby on Sunday. And to tell you the truth, because I was a young guy playing in men's football, they didn't really bother with me. They just went off home and, yeah. you know, they were mid-20s, early 30s or whatever, doing their own thing. So um, the football kind of heated out a little bit. And then the rugby, the social side at that age group, we had some really good people. One of the coaches, um, he was always putting his hand in the pocket, buying the beers for the boys, arranged amazing trips to go to Kinsale, and we'd go all over the region. And um, I just fell in love with the social aspect of rugby. Yeah. And just the togetherness of the guys. We were a really, really tight bunch of guys. And, and aside from my friends that I had at the rugby club, all these guys were completely new people to me from all over the area. And um, we just hit a real good, good, groove, good group of people. And in that Western under-19s team, we made it to the national quarterfinals of the whole, whole, whole UK, which is, which is quite, an, quite an achievement for yeah. a small club. And um, my first year, I played uh, winger and fullback. And then the, I've actually got a really good um, a squad picture of me with uh, some red samurai gloves on and these Nike boots. So I used to play yeah. in the backs. And then the following year, I must have turned 18 to, to 19. My second year at Colts, the coach who himself was a former second row said, listen, I think, you know, I'd started to become pretty tall by then. He said, yeah. well, I think you should move up to, to play in the second row. And, and to tell you the truth, from there on in, it went from under-19s there. I played for Somerset under-20s, which is the county equivalent, uh, a captain in that team. And then got involved with Western Seniors, played some time, time with the first team. And then pretty quickly from there on in, it, what it was, was once my dad came to see me play, he, had, he knew nothing about rugby. Didn't know anybody down the road club, knew nothing about rugby. Yeah. He saw me play a game for Somerset. I took the ball off the kickoff and, and sort of ran up the middle of the pitch. And he thought, geez, he's not too bad at this. I, I still yeah. had a kind of crossover of footballing ability in terms of athletic ability because I was a, a long-distance runner as well. I right, scored okay. a bit of cross-country and stuff. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was always been in, into athletics. And he actually started, this is quite unprecedented really, because I went to a, a normal community school, which, which wasn't big on a rugby. He started emailing um, the rugby club. So basically, Western Supermare is 20 miles south of, of Bristol. Yeah, it's a real hotbed of rugby, the southwest of England. So you have Bristol, twenty miles north. Further east is um, Bath. A bit further north, you've got Gloucester, and then if you go further south, you have Exeter, who weren't as big a team back then. Yeah. So he spoke to Bristol, Bath, and Gloucester. Bath got back to him. Gloucester got back to him. Um, but Gloucester were the one that were really keen on just getting me up to Hartbury, having a look at me, playing me in the under twenty ones team, and giving me a trial. So we went up training. We were actually talking about this coincidentally the other day. Me and my dad would drive up and get a McDonald's on the way home. And we would train with a lot of the players that have played for, for Gloucester over the years. And, and over time, there was a couple of coaches, um, Mark Hewitt and Carl Douglas, that um, took a gamble on me, kept inviting me up and got me a scholarship at Hartbury, which is a really popular university in England now. It's produced a number of different players. Um, yeah. From Dan Norton, who's probably the most successful sevens player almost ever. He played there. Loads of international players have played there. And um, yeah, and I, I got a scholarship there in, in Hartbury's early days. And um, that kind of gave, allowed Gloucester to have first dibs on these players. So Gloucester put me in the scholarship system. Um, I wasn't being paid at the time. I had 
free digs and um, a breakfast paid for me on campus. Go and do my weights with Hartbury and then play for Gloucester on a Monday night, play for Hartbury on a Wednesday. And then it just kind of grew momentum yeah. from there. And that would probably take me till I was about 21. And then I was part of the Exiles um, package through Ireland were pushing quite heavily for a, a, a number of Exiles. So my best friend now, Callum Black, he was already played under 19s for Ireland. And uh, he was moving to Gloucester to play for Worcester, first on his first senior contract. And there was a number of us that travelled over from England to Ireland to um, go on trial for um, this Exiles group to potentially be part of the Ireland um, under-21 Six Nations team in 2006, yeah. which was based in Athlone. And um, myself and a number of us made it. And it kind of went from there, really. So I went back to Gloucester made my senior appearance for Gloucester in 2008. Um, was offered another contract after two senior appearances. So I my first contract. In my second year, um, I was offered another contract. And at that time, Ulster had heard of me because I'd been on loan when I was at Gloucester to Pertent Bees, who weren't really in the first team. Um, and one of the coaches at Ulster, I don't know if you remember, a guy called Steve Williams. Uh-huh, yeah. He was Ulster's coach, Ford's coach at the time. And I'd worked with Steve, a Welsh guy, at Pertent Bees. He knew my Irish connection. He knew I played for Irish 20s. So he told um, Matt Williams, who was the coach at Ulster at the time, look, Dan's second row. I've worked with him previously. I can vouch for him. Um, I was probably 22 at the time. Um, you know, we should try and get him over to Ulster. So Ulster got in contract, contact with my agent. And bearing in mind, my first contract was £10,000. My second one was £17,500 I was on. But a grand, I think, at 22 years old, you think you're a millionaire. Yeah, yeah. You know, so like I was loving life. So yeah. Gloucester came in for me for another contract. It was, I think they offered similar. And also came in for a contract and it was like four times as much as that. Yeah. And I was like, well, this is a no brainer. Like yeah. this has to go. Huge club, could potentially have a chance to play first team. Irish connection, you know, just didn't think anything of it. And um, so I'd waited for this offer to come through. Mike Reed at the time, who was, who was, who was, um, involved in also at the board and um, said, listen, Matt Williams is keen on you. He's just flown back to Australia. Um, when I get hold of Matt, we'll send the contract through to you. We've got the offer, f- offer for you. We'll send it through to you. Um, no problem. And I was like, happy day. He's just stalling Gloucester at the time. So we're trying to get hold of Matt Williams. My agent's trying to get hold of him. Mike Reese trying to get hold of him. Complete radio silence. Yeah. Whilst he's back in Australia, he signs Ed O'Donoghue. Who coincidentally have become really, really good friends with Ed. Yeah. He signed Ed Adonio in 2008. So we get wind of this. We're like, fuck. You know, straight back to Gloucester. Yeah, we'll take the contract. No problem. Yeah. Dean Ryan, who was coach of Gloucester, said, listen, I, I know what you've been up to. Um, you've been messing around too long. Um, we've re-signed somebody else in your position. So I went out of Dean's office and I was like, shit. My fucking whole thing's collapsed. And then... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll finish it here before we move on to the next bit. My agent yeah, got yeah. in contact with Exeter Chiefs. And Exeter Chiefs had just played an EDF final and um, one of their locks had blew their knee out and they needed a lock for a year. So I said, perfect, get it signed. Uh, it was for 25 grand plus accommodation. I said, no problem. And this is in June. I had that contract signed. Yeah, um, it's quite had about two weeks off season. Yeah. Went, moved down to Exeter and, and 
And from that was when Exeter was still in the championship at the time. And, and then the following year, it repeated itself. But this time, Matt Williams was yeah. good, on, good to his word and, and signing. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting that the journey you've been, you've been on in terms of, it, it seems unlikely, you know, that you'd fall into this um, career of professional rugby, given Crazy. that gr- growing up, ha- having been primarily into football, even your physique must have been really different then. Did you did you hit a growth spurt at the age of 17 or something? Yeah, uh, uh, about 14 or 15. I, my football suffered because I hit such a growth spurt. Yeah. I just shot up and I was like a beanpole, really, really slim and just shot. Completely up, and my football uh, suffered to tell you the truth. Yeah, yeah. I I just there was lads that were like fifteen years old, strong, solid muscle playing football, and I was just like, you know, a beanpole. Yeah, yeah. Guys developed at different times, but when I got into the rugby, I dropped out of college. I was kind of just completely bumming around, doing nothing. I was working um, as a felt roofer, a Uh labourer as a felt roofer, and then I worked as another labourer on a building site. And then, but I was still playing rugby on the side. And when I told my boss, um, I said, listen, I've got a scholarship offer from, from university. You can go yeah. and play rugby up there and yeah. study. He, he just burst out laughing. He says, you ain't leaving. You are never going to make it out there. What are you doing? <laughs> so, well, I said, well, I'm not going to be in work next week, so better get somebody else. And he's a good family friend now, and we have a good laugh about it, but. Yeah, it was just. It just seems so unlikely. Yeah, it was crazy because I was not in any school system. I'd come late on the radar, but I think you get lucky in life, and also um, I've got a lot to be thankful for for people just taking a gamble on me. Yeah, yeah. Just I, going. Do you know what? I've not seen much about this kid. Never really heard about him, but I was abrasive. I was aggressive, and I had a. I was shot up to be, you know, six five. Although I was skinny, but they thought, you know, that's easy to thing. I think yeah. I was just raw. They thought yeah. we could coach this guy. Yeah. And in actual fact, if, if if that situation had gone out differently with Gloucester, I probably likely would never have gone over to Ulster. Yeah, yeah. Never played for Ireland. I might have even had a little spell playing for England. You never even know. Yeah. I could have fallen out of love with Gloucester and the whole thing fallen apart. So I know. I know. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy how these things work. Because yeah. I, when, when I moved to Ulster, I it was such a surprise for me for the school system. They were like, oh, I went to um, Methody or, or whatever it might be. And that was, yeah. they were almost like at 12, 13, 14, training like a professional, thinking like a professional. And it was always going to happen for these guys. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and it was, a, and it took me a long time to understand that rivalry between schools and how much it meant to the kids at school. Mm-hmm. And they still talk about it now. Yeah, yeah. And- it's crazy. You know, it was alien to me, but... It, it, they were destined for it. You yeah. can see that now. They were destined to always become rugby players. Some of these yeah. guys. And in contrast, I suppose you must have you obviously started playing in the backs, which is it's almost unbelievable. Do you know when you see an abrasive mm-hmm. second room and you hear that they started off in the backs? It must have been a, a real turning point for you in your career, stepping into that second room, and it must have felt a, a bit more like like home. And, and was there a moment where you thought? I actually have a chance at this. I suppose heartbreak was a big part of that. But was there, was there a specific moment you thought, actually, I'm pretty good at this. I could, I could actually yeah. make a career of it. So we played, uh, it would have been in probably just the turn of 2006. This is January. around. So yeah. it was Irish under-21s. We played Leinster under-21 slash A in a warm-up for the, and a kind of like a selection game for the um, Six Nations group. Yeah. And... Um, I made a break and I pretty much went about 50 meters up the pitch before I got tackled by the fullback. And um, 
I just thought to myself, like, people are always saying, they were saying they'd not seen a second row ever do that before. Yeah. Like, now you see these young kids, it's commonplace. Like, all these second rows, some of these kids I hear coming out of Leinster are just way more gifted than I was. But I'm, what I'm saying is, like, I had a bit of pace. I was a bit skinny doing these things because I was doing these things because I didn't really know, I didn't really know at the time what, like, a second row was meant to be doing. Yeah, what, what you're limited to. Yeah, yeah it was. Yeah. And then we played another trial game against Ulster and 21s. And I played up an Ulster A, Ulster and 21s, and I played against Lewis Stevenson. Yeah. I remember he, he was the same age as me, but he wasn't in the group, I think, or might have been a year older than me. And he just hammered me off the pitch. Hammered me. And I was like, ah, right, that's what a second row's bread and butter is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I had to find how to strike that balance yeah. between being still kind of a back and running with the ball and not really knowing what I was doing to putting some meat on the bone in terms of my ruck and putting that abrasive edge yeah. in, directed in the right way. And then you layer that on top of heartbreak and just time spent with the senior players at Gloucester. I got to play with some really good players. Marco Bortolami, who's a famous Italian lock, and Alex Brown, Will James and Mark Cornwall. I just over time soaked up what I got from them. Yeah. And it started to transfer a little bit more. And yeah, yeah. And it's it, funny it's, how it works. It worked out okay for you. And in terms of you're talking there about how unlikely it all was, okay, it, it must must be the case that you're a very driven, motivated person. Is that something that naturally came out in you? Did you ever have a chip in your shoulder? All these guys, probably public school educators, and it's the same. Do you know it's quite an elitist sport in some ways, and it's the same as, as you're talking about in Ulster. There's a certain set of of grammar schools tend to produce a lot of the Ulster guys. You're talking about it's it's quite similar in England. Do you know traditionally? A lot of the professional players come from certain schools. Did you have, did that drive you on? Even people telling you, look, you have no chance. Is that something which really you, you harnessed and, and motivated um, you? I think I was a, I, I've always had this sort of um, fear of not achieving it and being incredibly embarrassed about that. And it was embarrassing for me not to become this footballer or achieve what I was told I was going to achieve. I kind of had this, uh, yeah, there was a chip on my shoulder. I think I, think I probably still carry that to today, although it manifests itself over time when you become more experienced into, into something different. I think you have to have a chip on your shoulder, I think, to, to a certain degree. And uh, it, was, it was a strange time going across to Ireland. I wasn't particularly well-traveled through my upbringing. And... and um, trying to prove your Irishness, if that makes sense, uh -huh. that you're keen to play and that you deserve to wear this yeah. jersey of, of playing for Ireland. So that was a little bit of a, a driving factor. And also um, coming back into that Hartbury sort of environment, um, it was such a competitive environment for everybody that was on a scholarship. And you've seen the guys that were going on to play professional rugby players, or they were on peanuts, but that's, was your ultimate goal and that environment that really created and, and, and drove a lot of players forward to to, to the, the careers they've had today and I think without that sort of heartbreak experience and, and traveling over to Ireland like I said it I'm not too sure where I would have been to be honest it, it yeah. did create a, a, a real edge for me to, yeah. to go on to yeah you know, it's, it's interesting the number of people who talk about that so I was speaking to Rob Herring not that long ago and he was saying uh, he was over in a gap year in England and it was his old headmaster knew, knew someone uh, at London Irish and that's how he ended up 
getting a professional contract and things Crazy. like that that just work out and it's uh it's funny because you look at i you know as a fan you look at guys uh usually like yourself you know big guy you, you sort of think this guy is destined to play professional professional rugby but it just wasn't the case it sort of it sort of happened for you and it's through a combination yeah. of luck and hard work uh, and absolutely C- completely that and um like you tell me about Rob Herring and he's such a naturally talented player. You just find it hard to believe that, you know, it didn't come easier for him. But I just think you, you sometimes have to be in the right position at the right time. Like, yeah. you know, for that, yeah. for that guy even to think about Rob at that specific time and just nudge Rob in that right direction. Well, obviously, Rob's got to do loads of stuff. Like, I had to do loads of stuff to keep forcing the issue. But for these people to take a punt on you, you know, again and again and you get bounced around and people still believing in you. Um, yeah, it's inter- It's a lesser yeah. known travelled. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, exactly. And it's a, it's a case for, as you say, it's it's a less travelled route into the game. But um, for so many people, guys who've gone on to play international rugby like yourself, mm. um, it, it is just it has worked out. And I don't know if this is your experience, but a lot of the guys I've spoken to have said, look, there's guys a lot more talented than I was, for example, at school or. Uh, in your case, I suppose, going through Hartbury, who maybe didn't make it. Um, do you, what's the difference between those people who do make it and those who are maybe more naturally gifted uh, but don't ever yeah. go on to get a, a professional career out of it? It's crazy you say that, actually. I was texting Callum yesterday on, on the subject. I said, well, it's funny because we're just two average blokes that have, you know, just seem to have done it. And he, he goes, it's probably just through hard work, just yeah. through sheer hard work and determination, to be honest. I've seen so many talented guys and so many forwards that are big, strong, they're destined to do it. And it's just, sometimes it's a little bit unlucky. Sometimes they just haven't got that drive. They just yeah. haven't got it in the ticker, if you, if you know what I mean, in the heart to to, to want to do it when the, when the chips are down, potentially. Yeah. Um, it's hard to put my finger on, but... Um, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's, it's sort of losing... I think that. some people just cut out for it. I think some people will just cut out for that competition. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they really yeah. are. It's it's these um it's it, you know it's quite inspiring. I'm sure to, to even young people listening as well um to hear that uh, you can be gifted and uh, there's so many people you hear about uh, great sc- schoolboys coming up through the school schools cup or whatever and they don't they don't ever make it and and there's uh, there's something that separates uh, those people and uh, it sounds like the, the, the the recurring theme as you're talking about with Callum is is hard work and yeah. uh, just being completely dedicated to it and putting your your eggs in that basket I, I suppose and do you know what you would have maybe been doing if it hadn't been for this uh, this career that you've had um, it's probably a hard because, question <laughs> no yeah but I do think about it because my life was kind of going nowhere really I I had talked about trying to get something sorted in my life uh, and that route would probably have gone towards the military yeah just because i, 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 was, I had no qualifications i was just and, and to this day I, I can't really say what i want to do or want to be and i, I envy people that say oh, i'm desperate to be this or i've always wanted to be this and i'm going to control uh, put all my efforts in that one direction and, and for me there wasn't and i, I kind of thought to myself what was steady yeah and I thought maybe maybe I'll be well suited and my sort of makeup of it and my love for competition would be well suited to go to the military. My dad was in the RAF. Um, I thought about it. I never went, because of the rugby took off, I didn't have to didn't have to go any further. But it was something that I was thinking about. But 
I can't honestly put my hand up. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. definitely would have done anything. Yeah. I always actually wanted to be a PE teacher. So I'm oh, just going to plug again. you in to get some power in here. Oh, no worries. Um, yeah, I, I always wanted to be a PE teacher, yeah. Because I thought my PE teacher was, <laughs> he was class. Yeah. He was a footballer and he was good at everything. Yeah. So I always wanted to be a PE teacher and I thought it would have suited me. And to this day, I might, might you know, you never know, might become a PE teacher. Yeah, I was just going to ask about the fact that you're you're more into football. And, <laughs> well, if, number one, who do you support in, in football? I'm a big Liverpool fan. Oh dear, oh dear. Yeah, 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 <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> you've done you've done all right recently. Anyway. Uh, listen, <laughs> I, I, well, I'm, in, I'm 35 in June, so for the large part of my whole school school life, you know, I was it was Man United. Yeah, you know, yeah. they were the best team. You yeah, know? well, the tables have turned now. Yeah, the tables have turned for now. It will go back again and every year again in my lifetime. So. Fingers crossed. Fingers exactly. crossed. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I was going to ask you a wee bit about Ulster then. I suppose we, we sort of got up to the point where you joined Ulster and there was a bit of uh-huh. toing and froing there. You eventually come to Ulster where uh, you, you had a, a really good long spell and um, you'll be fondly remembered by all Ulster fans, uh, no doubt about that. And you're cemented onto that team for years. But whenever you joined Ulster, what were, what were your first impressions and what was the welcome like? Was it a very competitive environment um, um, or did you have people coming in? I suppose you're, you're pretty young coming into Ulster. Did you have guys come put their arm yeah. around you uh, or, or what was the sort of atmosphere like? So I joined officially after the first fell move in 2009. So I would have been 24 that summer. I joined, yeah, 24 that summer. Um, and it was welcoming in, in, in certain aspects because I had played with 21s with Darren Cave, uh, Paul Marshall, David Pollock at the time he was yeah. there um, so I had a few familiar faces I actually knew Tom Court because he was he when I was at Pertemps at Gloucester I was on loan at Pertemps Tom came on loan to us from Ulster he was trying to learn his craft in, in the front row so I yeah. knew Tom from playing with me so I had a reference point there yeah so it was kind of handy and my agent at the time was from Northern Ireland so I had a few reference points you know it wasn't completely alien to me um, the other second rows were Ryan Coldwell, um, Ed O'Donoghue, myself, Matt McCulloch were there at the time. Um, maybe Neil McCombe did join the year after. So um, the first year was, I, I actually had a preseason game against Newcastle and I scored a try from like the halfway line to pick the ball up and went in. And, and it was like, um, people were like, Oh shit, you know, we didn't expect this from him because yeah. Steve recommended me and then Steve got sacked. Yeah. So I, I, I turned up at New Forge in April to, I think I just signed my contract or was signing it and where the boys used to train. And I think extra season at the time had just finished or I'd come up pretty much at the end of the season. And um, I was walking around New Forge, bumped into Tom, went into the office, spoke to Steve Williams. And he was like, oh, yeah, I've just been sat, you know, watch you back in this place. You know, the, the knives are always out for you as a player. And it's like, oh, fuck, <laughs> I've destroyed this place. Cheers, Steve. So I was thinking, oh, Christ, you know, well, I walked myself into here. Yeah. I didn't really know anybody else. So I sat down with Matt and uh, at the time he was still the coach. And um, the boys had a, had a week off, I think. So I was looking for places to live and, and trying to get my contacts up. And... Um, that summer, I went on holiday to, to Thailand with my uncle. Me and my uncle went to Thailand. And I got a phone call um, from Matt. I missed a phone call. He left a voicemail message from me 
said, Matt Williams said, I can't wait to work with you. Um, enjoy the rest of your summer break and I'll see you in four weeks. Um, I'm back after Australia, you know? So, um, it, whilst he was on the way to Australia, the branch rang him up in the, in their airplane and he, they sacked him, left a voicemail on his phone. So when he landed in Australia, he found out he was sacked. Yeah. I didn't know this at the time. My dad just texted me, yeah. said, check out the news. Matt Williams has been sacked. And I was like, in the middle of an island in Thailand. Yeah. I was like, fuck, I just got a message off him like 24 hours ago. Yeah. So this is crazy. So I arrived and Brian McLaughlin was there. Um, and they still had a number of good players. You know, Bestie was 27 or whatever age he might have been. And uh, Trimby was there. Some high, quite high profile players. Um, Paddy Wallace. But the place was just, and Jeremy Davidson came in, the place was lacking that sort of experience edge, what they brought in the following year. Yeah. So when they brought the raft of South Africans in, yeah. uh, BJ was there still, and BJ had a, was there again the following year, Johan and you know, you know the rest. Um, that just added that sort of spine that the place was missing that I felt. Yeah. Um, I, I loved it because I, I played all the time. I couldn't believe it. I never thought I was going to go there and play all the time. They were in the European Cup and you know, I'd gone from playing two professional games for Gloucester in the, in the Premiership, playing loads of A-League, loads of stuff in the Championship with Exeter and Gloucester and Mosley. And all of a sudden I was playing in the Celtic League and the Champions Cup. Yeah. For me, that was just class. We had Bath away. So when I went to play against the way of Bath, all my family were there, friends were there. It, I, th- I thought this was great. I... I absolutely loved it. Loved yeah. it. Yeah. And then that year um, was great. We didn't, we didn't achieve much. And I went on tour with Ireland that year as well and got my first cap. And I just thought life was, life couldn't get any better to tell you the truth. Yeah. I was loving it. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And tell, tell me a bit more about that first cap for Ireland. I suppose, um, the, as you're talking about earlier, things could have worked out very differently. You obviously have that Irish connection, but what, what was it like to step into that Irish camp for the first time? You've got guys like yeah. O'Connell, O'Callaghan there. It's a, sort of a golden era for, for uh, Irish, <laughs> the Irish team, as well as Irish second rouge as it well. It was, and um, Decky, Declan Kidney sort of called a lot of us in. We, we, I was in camp in the Autumn Internationals, and... Um, just, I was never going to play, but I was there trying to get a foot. They were taking a look at me, getting a feel for the place. And um, I remember being around Paulie and Donica and, and this, and I thought, Jesus Christ, I'm a million miles away from this. Like, yeah. Come from well, Hartbury to this in the space of three years. I was like, fuck, I'm nowhere close to this. Yeah. Well, what was it about those guys that, that made you think that? How did they stand out? They just, years of conditioning, you know. This is 2009, so a couple of years after. This is just, yeah, they've just been on a Lions tour. Yeah. I mean, they just look the part. Yeah. They look like international second rows. They carry themselves like it. They train like it. They're aggressive. They're physical in training. Um, they had all like freaking muscles up here. I was still, yeah. you know, trying to get myself conditioned. I thought, fucking hell, like, this is impressive. That was impressive. And, and I, I guess that's the reason why Ireland did that. They brought me in for that reason and bring us in for that reason. Yeah. So you go back to your province and think, this is what it looks like. This is what I need to become. Yeah. And, and it does work. I, I really like that. Um, I toured in the summer. It was uh, New Zealand, Australia, and, and the Maoris. 
I played in all three games and, and obviously came off the bench in the first one. But the, the team was decimated. I mean, you know, it wasn't a particularly strong Irish team, to be fair. We, we lost all three games. And um, that was the one thing that, it was, I mean, it was amazing. I finished the tour, got two, two full caps and the, the Mary game was uncapped. But I felt that, you know, I never got an opportunity mm-hmm. in a Six Nations game with a full set of team. And then the f- next time I got capped was two years post, so the World Cup in 2011. Yeah. And then it was just another t- tour to New Zealand in 2012. Um, and although I played the three games, it was just like, you know, we were on a bit of a hide into nothing, to be honest. Yeah. You know, yeah. I never really got a chance to put my best foot forward. Um, when I, when I thought, when I felt I was in form in 2011, 12, and the Six Nations, so that was a bit of a shame of mine. It was a long time ago, so it was hard to hard to fully remember what went down there. But um, you know, I've mixed emotions when when it comes to Ireland. But certainly for the first first tour was was incredible. To be fair, to show how far I'd come from under 21s in 2006 to, to full Ireland cap in 2010 was yeah, yeah. really something. No, I'm sure. And in terms of uh, obviously. To play at that top level and get 11 caps overall uh, it is a massive achievement. But I suppose during that time, you, you, were, you were on that Ulster team and playing well for, uh, for that whole period. You're in a very successful period for Ulster as well. Do you ever look back and, and go, uh, uh, do you have any regrets about not playing more for Ireland? Um, or is it just one of those things, there's uncontrollable circumstances? Do you know whether it be the coach or injury or, or whatever? Or do, do you look back and have regrets? You could have maybe Yeah, I, I do, I do. I think um, when I look back at that time, uh, and now I've finished, I have to keep telling myself 11 caps is, is, an, is a great achievement. And, and you'd offered yeah. me that, I'd have completely snapped your hand off. But looking back, I feel that I probably should have got 25 to 30. Yeah. I think, like you touched on earlier, there was that golden age of, of Irish second rows. Um, but there was a kind of gap, if you like, from when behind Paulie and Donica O'Callaghan, Malcolm McKelly had gone. And then there was like Donica Ryan, Mick O'Driscoll, Leo Cullen. And then there was like, kind of myself and then Dev Toner was coming on the scene and there was just that sort of gap for me to really get in there a little bit more than I did to tell you the truth and uh, although I was in good form sometimes I felt my face didn't fit all the time I'm not 100% sure why that was um, but I certainly think I should have capitalized more and forced it more than I, than I did and I think sometimes I, I, I get labeled for um, maybe it was like an arrogant thing about me, but I always felt that when you went down to camp, it was always like, because I wasn't Irish, I had to prove there was always something different. I, it's hard to put my finger on it and people might agree or, or disagree with me. And um, I was quite relaxed. I was quite comfortable in the, in, in, in Irish camp. I, I didn't particularly, I wasn't a particularly intense character off the pitch. I can joke around, I can mess around, but I, I always felt I knew when to switch on when it was playing and training. But I think I suffered from that because there was still that element of like, you have to be a complete psychopath off the pitch. And yeah, yeah. Like literally whacking your head off the wall all the time and training. It just wasn't my style. Yeah. You know, when I trained, I can train, you know, I train hard and stuff, but I think people kind of mistake that for me not really caring and, and I found that over time, 
especially when Declan was involved and I've got an awful lot to thank him for, for what he did for me in, in terms of caps. I thought sometimes perception was killing me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was other guys, and I won't mention names, that would go in and badger in the coach, the forwards coach for, you know, just kiss ass and maybe, but just nonstop badgering him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it's just not in my makeup to do things like that. I wouldn't even know how to kiss up to people. It'd be yeah. embarrassing even listening yeah. to me. Yeah. I, I, if I needed the information, I'd go to him. I'd, I'd source it myself. And I would never get caught short on that. But I think it was like, if it was like a 50-50 between me and somebody else, they might go, oh, well, we'll go with him. And I never really understood that for a while. And it wasn't until probably it was too late that I went, I probably could have done more in, in terms of forcing my case. But it just wasn't yeah. my style. I tried to let my rugby do the talking, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. But I do have a lot of regrets when it comes to Ireland. The, the cap should have been more. I remember Paddy Wallace coming back from camp once and said, listen, Dan, I, I can't figure out why you're not there because they've got obviously the two main boys and Donald Ryan was a, was a solid player and but behind that Leo was old he certainly wasn't athletic they, they took those four guys maybe one other to the World Cup and it just yeah yeah for some reason it, it just wasn't me I, I don't know why it's it's all and you do you do see that I mean we've we've experienced it at Ulster with um, various players where it um I'm not one of these people who buys into an anti Ulster conspiracy theory or anything like that, but I think you're right in terms of sometimes someone's face just doesn't fit or um, they're looking for a different balance in the squad. Even who's Dev Toner more recently been after the World Cup squads? Mm, that's um, crazy. Yeah, it's just, it just seemed a bit mad. And um, obviously, coaches just have their, their own reasons for uh, for doing these things. Um, I, 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 would, I would agree with you. I think it's easier to just throw that anti-Ulster thing out there. It really does fit a narrative if you want to sell it. Now, for me, we weren't particularly successful. We were, we were building something then in 10, 11, 12. But if you've got, to, if it's 50-50 between an Ulster player or a Munster and Leinster player, you go, do you know what? The Munster and Leinster player has been around more successful squads. I feel we, he would probably be able to deliver at that crunch moment. Yeah. Yeah, and there's no, and to be fair, when it comes to international rugby, you can't really knock them for that. Yeah, yeah. Because Ulster hadn't been at those crunch times that often, yeah. time and time again. So we hadn't had evidence of that, and they just had that history of that. Yeah, and that can that can literally be enough to swing it in the balance of somebody else. I know p- people who are, who are used to being around that uh, that winning environment and, and are just used to p- playing at that very top level. Right. Mick O'Driscoll, Mick is a great guy. Brilliant, brilliant fella. But I'm not, never, every day of the week and twice on Sunday, you're never a better player than me. Never. He's fourth choice at Munster. Yeah, yeah. He was a great, great fella and a st- strong, sturdy player. But if it came down to it, they'd be like, you know, Mick gives us that little bit more experience. He's worked with Paulie and Donica, or both Donicas. We'll probably, we'll probably go with him. Yeah. And I understand it. It's a low risk. Mick's not going to win you the game. He's not going to lose you the game. Yeah, I yeah. understand that. I understand yeah. that. And and in terms of your game, I suppose I mean, you're always a guy who who brought an abrasive edge. And um, uh, in terms of like looking back in your career, what was your what would you describe as your X factor? Do you know in terms of what what put you obviously to to get to get to that international level, you have to have that that X factor. What did you what did you try and do to set yourself apart from those guys? It's a tough question, actually. Um, 
I think oh, I think the abrasive edge is is maybe there. And I, I think when I review my career and I look back now and maybe have an odd quiet moment to myself and I think to myself, what was I good at? <laughs> Sometimes I think I don't know if I was really that good at everything. And then, yeah. but was I really weak at anything? I wasn't a massive tackler. I could carry, or maybe I was a bit more athletic at that age. I was pretty good in the line out. Um, I played the right hand side lock at Ulster, which was tight head scrummaging lock. Um, and I think I benefited from having Jonathan in front of me. We had a yeah. strong scrum that yeah. goes hand in hand. And then it's very much the effect of save. We talk about Paul and Donica. I had Johan as well, so it was all Johan and Dan. I benefited yeah. from that. Yeah. Um, you know, he he was really influential for me personally as a person and a player. Yeah. He would always push me selection wise with the coaches. He'd always be like, you know, I want to play with Dan this week, for example. Yeah. Which yeah. really helped me to be fair. Yeah. So I'd get a chance. Maybe if I didn't have a good game the previous week, he'd be like, no, I want to stick with Dan. I'm comfortable with playing him. I trust him. Yeah, yeah. I'll play again next week. I'll play myself back into form. So I wouldn't say I had one attribute that was just miles above anything else that cut me above the rest. I think I was, I think maybe I, I had the opportunity to give you an extra offload. I had a little bit of athleticism, a little bit of speed, maybe a bit quicker the line out. Um, general fitness was okay. I, I couldn't really put my finger yeah. on it. And, and, but, you know, I, I, I felt like I was abrasive and confrontational. Um, I didn't shy away from that, but you know, sometimes I was liable for the odd yellow card. I know, and that, but, that again, could have, that could have, again could have hurt me with Ireland because if you're really wearing it up and you're going, fuck it, you could give us yellow today. I just, I don't think we can, we can afford that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's interesting what you're saying though, though about uh, abrasiveness and how it can be a double-edged sword. Uh, I think with Ulster over the past historically, and, and I suppose even more recently they've been accused of maybe being a bit too nice and you do need someone uh, to like, and they talked about it around the time that uh, Toner was left out of the, the Ireland squad talking about having an enforcer in the team, having that mm-hmm. sort of number, number five, the tight head lock. And uh, it's a phrase which started, a lot more people became aware of and started to use this tight head, tight head lock. Joe, Joe was, would always refer to me as a tight head lock. He goes, I love you the way you play. You're my tight head lock. You know, that's, that's your position. Yeah. And I think now thinking about it, like you said, then I think it might have been born from him from the amount of time he spent in France is very, very big in France. Yeah. The five is completely, the, the five lock here is not like, it's completely different to what it is, what I was used to. The five lock now, it was in France, is a 60 minute man. Mm-hmm. Normally, sometimes you won't even jump in the lineup. You'll be a lifter only. And you're literally there to be in the middle of the pitch, just absolutely whacking lads, yeah. being borderline illegal mm-hmm. in France. Yeah. Now, cross over to the modern day, you could be a bit more athletic, but the guy who swings the mind is the Paul Willems, Willemies or whoever plays for France. Uh-huh, yeah. Perfect example of that. Big, strong, looks a little bit ugly. It's not particularly pretty, but very effective. Mauls, yeah. is yeah. that hard edge, big scrum. And then you you complement him with a with a more athletic fourth. I think France are even doing it with a back row that plays in second row. So that was Joe was big on that. Joe liked that five, that big scrummaging five. We didn't have a Ireland have never had a big big scrum. You know, tight tight Tigers is is strong, dominant, but he's not like ridiculous in the scrum where he destroys all. There's no no tight is really. So 
Joe was always big on that big five in behind that tight head. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's why he went with without Dev in the World Cup. Yeah. But for me, that's another story for another day. Yeah. And uh, going back a wee bit to Ulster, you had, you had a really good spell at Ulster for seven and a half seasons. Tell me a bit more about, about your experience over the course of those seasons. Maybe you mentioned about Johan Muller and that sort of spine of South African players who came into the team. So you had Vandenberg, you had Muller, you had Pienaar, uh, and then Afoa joined. Obviously, he played for the All Blacks. So in terms of the, the, the level that, that raised the team to, you talked about that bringing on your game, but tell me a bit more about sort of what what the culture was like and how maybe those guys changed it. Yeah, I think um, one it showed a real statement of intent from Ulster, and, and kudos has to really go to David Humphreys for recruiting these guys because yeah. um, if it wasn't for Victor Matfield, Johan probably would have had fifty or sixty caps. To be honest, for South Africa, it was just that you know Victor and Backies, and then Johan was behind him. Yeah. You know? But when he arrived, he was coming towards the end. But he wasn't over the hill by any means. I think he was only just just 30. Yeah. So he had a lot of rugby left in him. Mm-hmm. Really looked after himself. Um, soon as he arrived, brought straight into what Ulster was always about. You know, it, like he'd been there for years. Took the team on by the scruff of the neck, which was needed because Rory was away a lot with Ireland. You know, he had the... We have Six Nations, Autumn International, Summer Tours, then he had the World Cup. So he was away an awful lot when Johan was there consistently. He was that strong presence within the lineup. So he ran it, which gave Jeremy Davidson a bit more space not to have to be his hands on. Yeah. Um, and I can speak about Johan because I played with him an awful lot. He just had that air of experience. He'd been there, done it at the top level, um, was still given an awful lot back to the team, both on and off the pitch. And um, he was a man that when you spoke, when he spoke, you just listened because he didn't make irrational decisions. Um, he was a smart guy. Everybody enjoyed his company. Um, and it was a very, some really, really, you know, Ruan's like a friggin' Rolls Royce, you know. You play on a dirty pitch, you'd still come off pristine white. You know, he's just a classy, classy act. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Pedri's a good player, you know. Wasn't world beater, but he had his, certainly had his, his moments. But yeah, Johan, yeah. for me, was was the real one for me. He, he brought me on, um, really taught me, you know. He, he was like the Paul O'Connell. Yeah effectively for Ulster he was that yeah. and all those locks that have come through Munster all try and mirror poorly they're all the same they all jump the same they talk the same they try and do things the same because that's the effect of such a such a player like that yeah. you know, they really do have that big effect on, on players and, and yeah. Johan had that on myself yeah no it's uh, it was amazing the impact uh, those guys had along with a bunch of guys it just, it's just such a strong team if you look through that sort of uh, team that made the final in, in 2012, I think it was. It's, I did watch that game yesterday, they streamed, but I did watch it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, amazing. Such, uh, just such a good starting team. And we're, we're, get, we're getting back there now. Do, do, you, do you follow Ulster now? Like, would you watch their games and, and things like that? So I left in December 2016 and I had a real problem with watching them, to tell you the truth. And... I kind of didn't really want to watch them, to be honest. I'd speak to a few of the players and, and then a whole group of my friends left. Yeah. And now it's, I always, always followed their result. I wouldn't yeah. always make, go out my way to watch them. 
Yeah, yeah. Because you want to move to England and then um, I've been over here for years, you'd have to kind of go out your way to get the stream up or get the channel up. Um, I watched them for the first time in an absolute desperate match against Ospreys. Uh, yeah. Start of the season, it was a terrible match. I went to I went to my wife. I went. This is the first time I've watched them since I left. I think nearly one of the first times. Yeah. Um, but I always look at the results every single weekend. Um, there's not many guys there I know to tell you the truth. There was a few young lads that were there, but um, I actually was lucky enough to tour the Barbarians with Sam Carter and Matt Fardes, so I know how good they good players they are. So that added an extra element for me to want to watch them. Yeah. I still really like Alan O'Connor, um, Andy Warwick, and the guys. So. I kind of watch it just to hope they're doing well and they're playing. But yeah. um, I do keep on do do keep up the results. Um, so I can't offer you an opinion as to how they're playing or what I what I have seen. But results wise, I think um, what Bryn did with the team, he had to do. And I think with players like John Cooney and stuff, and they've got that sort of youthful, yeah, no fear type mm-hmm. of. The only thing I would say and. I, it's rich for me because I wasn't even from Austria. Is that it, it does have a, a little bit of an air of a not a rejects team, but they're picking a lot of players up from other provinces. Yeah, it's yeah. not really got that Ulster. There's not many Ulster players mm-hmm. in that team, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it does, and it's something a lot of people talk about. Uh, we've really benefited from the strength and depth depth that uh, Leinster have um, yeah. we've brought up some really good guys the likes of Jack McGrath and Marty Moore have been transformative um, Marty Moore in particular has been a revelation you know how important that uh, tight mm-hmm. head prop uh, position is and uh, Marty Murray gives us a really uh, stable base to, to play off and he, he maybe doesn't look the most athletic player in the world but he gets around and he makes hits and carries mm-hmm. and um, been really impressed by him as you say like uh, it's a really young squad. A uh, lot, of, lot of guys, and increasingly local guys, coming through the ranks, which I suppose it is important as well, because you have to have, I think, to be a successful team, you need guys coming. Uh, you need to be developing players um, from Ulster. Even when I was there, they struggled to, to develop forwards. Yeah, they had, there was no lack of backs. Yeah, they had backs coming out. There is yeah. super talented ones, and I can see they've got that now with. Um, how do you pronounce his surname? Robert um, Balakun. Yeah, I mean yeah. he looks super talented, and yeah. they've got heaps of backs. They always have, but it's the forwards they've always lacked. Mm. And you, will, you know, Hendy was the shining light. When I remember when first joining the squad, you thought, oh, you know, if you could produce two or three type of players in different yeah. positions, you know, that that's always been a struggle. I think. Yeah, for, for, for the did Hendy sort of stand out? Do you coming through the ranks? Uh, yeah, also. I remember him, him tra- tra- jumping in with training. His hair was big, floppy, and you know, jumping in the line out, he was a little all over the place. But he was so coachable yeah. that um, you could see, you could see, you yeah. could see. It was yeah. no surprise. Yeah, and I, I remember early doors when he was. I was sort of picking up a few niggling injuries, and I was like, nah. He, he definitely should play six. You know, he's definitely not a lot. But you know, he he could self self preservation. <laughs> yeah, at that point, I was bedridden. You could see, you could see. It's it's no surprise, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, it's um, yeah, it's good to see him captain the team. And there's been a sea yeah. change uh, in terms of the culture and the atmosphere with Dan McFarland coming in. Um, there's a real positivity around Ulster now. Uh, having spoken mm. to a number of the guys, um. Not something, as I say, interviewed a good number of players. 
and you've cropped up in conversation guys say you're a really good guy to have around the squad in terms of atmosphere as well like sort of leading the banter and um things like that which is really important to have in the team is that something that yeah sort of you did deliberately or is that just your your personality coming out yeah that's just personality when i feel comfortable um I think that's quite often overlooked, to, to tell you the truth, to have that team squad cohesion. Yeah. Um, because it can be a long season and you're going to struggle at times if it's just professional, professional, professional all the time. You know, I was always the first one, there's a group of us leading the charge on going out for socials, trying to get buy-in from players because I felt it was so important to do that. Yeah. And, and I always felt that what I was to struggle with sometimes was when players left, I always wanted players to speak about the place really, really well. But they didn't. Not everyone did. And it's almost impossible to keep everybody happy. It really, really is almost impossible. But if you're a decent enough fella, you go, do you know what? It didn't work out for me at the club, but I can't have anything but good things to say about the people there or the environment or the atmosphere. I'm not too sure that was always the case. Um, but like I said, there was a, was a raft of guys that left. Yeah. I think I was one of the first and it went from Padding Stew for obvious reasons, Ruan, and they just, and I think Ulster needed to do that. They yeah. really did need to go, do you know what? We're going to suffer for maybe two years. It, it might be tough watching us, but we have to just have a change because you, you need to, sometimes you need to change it all and just go, right, we'll back the young boys. We're going to struggle at times, mm-hmm. but I think long term wise, it really could pay off rather than just keep plugging gaps and holding yeah. on to players. Yeah. I think they did. I, a lot of credit has to go to Brim for that. Yeah. For, and the people sticking strong with him, you know? There, yeah, there's clearly a game plan there in terms of, um, I'm not sure, you know, I don't know how, how deliberate all that was. I get the sort of you leaving in a, in a second, um, but in terms of um, that raft of players who, who went out of the team, it was, it was scary times. I was sort of thinking, like, who are we left with here? But it actually, yeah. for, it actually forced the young guys yeah, uh, out of necessity to step in and up their game, and I mean we haven't won anything uh, in a long time, but certainly we're building, and that's that's been great uh, to see. There's there's guys coming through, and I suppose there's there's hope uh, for for the future at Ulster. Whereas as you say before, it was sort of plugging gaps here and there, and uh, sort of guys um, coming to the end of their careers and stuff. It's gotten to lose uh, so many players at one time, but uh, as you say, raft the players uh, left the club. You're the first of those to go. Tell me a bit more yeah. about like what what made what helped you uh, make that decision, or what made you make um, that decision to, to leave Ulster and, I, and go elsewhere. <laughs> I've never really spoken about it. Well, I've spoken about it a little bit, but not in too much detail. The reason I can't do that is because I signed a non-disclosure agreement with the club and lawyers and stuff, so I won't go into the okay the real nitty gritty. But um. It was something that I, I was 18 months through a three-year contract and uh, opportunities came up elsewhere. And do you know what? I had a lot of niggling injuries. Also, I'd broken my right forearm twice. I had done my uh, real nasty ankle injury that kept me out for 10 months that um, nearly finished me, actually. And I thought I just needed a fresh challenge um, my son was two years old, and um, when Bristol came in, although it was a pretty poor um, time for Bristol in terms of being bottom of the league, it was back to where I was from. I was just turned 30, I think it was. Yeah, I was 
16. I was 31. So I felt that I only had a number of years left. So I had 18 months left of my contract at Ulster. I actually signed a guaranteed 18 months at Bristol, but with the things I could have, if I did a certain number of games, I'd extend it by another year. So I actually felt that it was a year extension. Um, having conversations with Bryn, um, weighing up all these options, the money on the table was good at Bristol. It wasn't the same guaranteed money. Ulster was a little bit lower, but really, really high match bonuses that I felt were achievable. So I went for the money. I went for a potential extra year of my contract which could have been, again, more money because also weren't going to pay me that much more post that because of my age. Loads of different factors came in. I really rolled the dice on it, and I think I lost. I think I probably should have stayed and see that my contract. But I wouldn't say it was a huge loss. I wouldn't say it was a massive loss. Um, we nearly got a chance to keep Bristol up, and, and one of the games we lost against Worcester towards come towards the end of the season, I, I redid my forearm, and it was just... Yeah. There I thought, bollocks, maybe I should have stayed for a bit longer. Having said that, with what transpired the following summer in 2017, I think it was, maybe I was best out of the place. You know, who's to know? Who's to know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly Ulster went through a really difficult time um, for, for obvious reasons and uh, having lost a lot of players due to various circumstances, uh, there are some dark times for Ulster. In terms of your, your playing career, tell me a bit more about, the, I mean, you, after Ulster, you did, you played for a few different teams. Tell me mm. a bit more about sort of how you, how, how that went and how maybe you felt your career, was it a wind down? I know you suffered a really catastrophic injury towards the end, but did you feel yeah, like uh, it you was, your body... Um... So I joined Bristol with with high hopes and, and we, we won a couple of games. I thought, we might keep this team up here. And then I did my forearm again, my left one this time in the game against Worcester away. My season was over. We got relegated. I was thinking, fuck, you know, down in the championship is not why I see myself. At, yeah, turning 32 that summer, not what I wanted to be. But I'll suck it up. I'll try and trigger my extra year that I was talking about in my contract. Pat came in. I knew he was coming in. Pat was okay with me signing for Bristol. Um, came in early pre-season at Bristol's request. Trained my bollocks off. Um, pulled um, my calf muscle doing crazy running session. Yeah, it was just stupid. Then coming back from that, I tore my hamstring. Said, right, I've got the person who was in charge of my SNC. You know, I moved to somebody else. He was in charge of me. And Bristol were just battering teams in the championship now part of my contract was a match bonus and that was applicable in the premiership or the championship it was a lot of money at the time per game and pat came to me and said listen you know we're not going to pay you that money because you're non-eqp because i was only irish qualified even though i was born in england i was non-eqp i was 32 with a patchy injury history is we're not going to play you because we don't want it to get into the realm of triggering that final year and you it's not worth paying you that money to play against Richmond or, you know, Ealing or whoever teams were in the championship because, you know, we're not into it. But what I will do, you know, you can go out on loan and, and stuff and explore avenues to, to continue playing post yeah. us. So I kind of knew earlier on that it wasn't going to happen with Bristol. So I got fit from that. Uh, spoke to Jordan Crane, who, who was at Bristol, previously been at Leicester. He texted Matt O'Connor. Um, then Matt gave me a phone call. Then Pat didn't know I had text. I'd set it up myself. Then Pat rang me and said, I've just spoken to Matt. He'd be pretty keen to take you on loan. I said, well, as long as you're happy with that, Pat. He goes, yep, no problem. Uh, Leicester are going to pay your wages. 
um, which is great. Spoke to Matt, went up there and spent some really quality time at Leicester. My family stayed in Bristol, which was tough, but um, I, I loved it. Brilliant club, brilliant, brilliant club. Some great people there. And this is talking about, we're talking about lucky and unlucky at the start of this conversation. There was a, a game in the Premiership Shield, you know, the second competition. I'd started against uh, Gloucester at home and then the following week we were playing Bath away. And Matt goes, listen, go home. You've not seen your family for a few weeks. You don't need to be here. You know all the plays. I'll just see you at the stadium, which is super, super rare. You never hear that. And I was like, fuck, are you sure, Matt? And he's like, yeah, yeah, just, mate, you, you don't know. You don't need me to tell you how to play rugby. I'll see you at the, I'll see you at the rec. We're going to chuck you on the bench and just come off the bench for 30 minutes. Oh, fucking brilliant happy days I've been treated like an adult for once off our home I went turned up at the hotel and they go listen you don't mind starting for us do you and I said nah sure no problem first half went into a tackle cleaned out on the back of my shoulder did my shoulder I shouldn't I wasn't even meant to be on the pitch yeah wasn't even meant to be on the pitch came off at half time went to see a consultant blew my shoulder out less goes we'll pay for the surgery no problem you can rehab here or go back to Bristol I said, well, I want to go back to my family and stuff. And the physio there was really good at Bristol. Yeah. Rehab, rehab worked my nuts off. It was a 16-week injury. I got back in 12. And then Olivier Zam, who I previously worked with at Gloucester all those years ago, was a, was a forwards coach at um, Stafford Sane. And they're having a bit of trouble in that season. And uh, they'd got a medical joker second row in. A guy called Brandon Nassin, who's now uh, Newport Great Dragons. He had just broke his forearm, an injury that I'd previously done. He rang me up after nine weeks of my shoulder. I said, listen, I'm not really ready to play because it's a 16-week injury. I've only done nine weeks. I said, speak to me in a, in a few more weeks. Rang me back up again. How are you getting on? I said, my shoulder feels great. He's right, come on over to Paris. Met the team and signed for them for a medical joker from the official contract the 7th of March to the, to the end of to the 7th of June. Went to Pat. And Pat said, yeah, confirmed what we talked about is there's not a position for you next year. Um, what I can do, I can um, pay you out the remainder of your contract at Bristol, three months or whatever it is. Um, and that means you can get the money from us. We'll save a bit on tax. You can go and play for staff on saying earn again. Mm-hmm. I thought, great. You know, and, and that was honesty from Pat. You know, he sat me down in his office. You know, he didn't fuck around, told me straight away. I appreciated it. And I shook his hand yeah. and said, listen, Pat, I, I appreciate you being honest with me. We didn't have a great relationship, me and Pat, for, for different reasons. But, you know, I really did appreciate being treated like that. And he says, mm-hmm. listen, anytime you need anybody to, to give you a reference, don't hesitate to give them my number. And I'll give a good word in for you. I know how hard work just didn't work out for you at Bristol. Yeah. There's a lot to be said for that. Yeah, you got the appreciate the straight Yeah, I did. Of it, yeah. So I went to Stad, um, proved my shoulder was fine, played a heap, played in the champion. I played the, no, I was cup type of the Champions Cup there, I played in the Challenge Cup. Played against Claremont, played against Breve, played away against Leon, played in the Derby at Racing. Was like, this is great, you know. Mrs. K- Mrs. was pregnant with our second one. She came over with our first child. We went to Disneyland. We just had a brilliant time. I had a little apartment in Paris. Coming towards the end, I was I wasn't GIF, and they needed a GIF lock for next year. And they said, listen, down, we really want to keep you. We've really enjoyed working with you this year, but you know there's not a position for you. Heineken Mayer's coming in as coach, and he doesn't see you next season. But thanks very much. So I went back to Bristol, where I was living, and I was like, fuck, I've got no club. I'm 32, 33 in the summer, coming up to 33, and um, no one is ringing my agent for me. I'm not French qualified. I'm non-GIF. I'm not EQP. 
um, Irish qualifier, which makes me be able to four provinces. Mm-hmm. I even spoke to Coventry. I went to meet Coventry because I was struggling that much for a club. To wrap it all up, the club I'm at now, Van, got in contact with um, the head of operations, the German guy who I got a really good relationship with, Stad. And he says, listen, you know, they were looking for a tight head here at Van. And Van goes, um, Stad goes, we haven't got a tight head that can come to you. But what I can do for you is I know a guy who played there last year. We would love to keep him, but we can't. Um, he's out of contract. Maybe if you try him. So get a phone call off Van. They weren't even looking for a lock. They actually, they actually sacked one of their players yeah. to, to get me in. So I came to meet. I, I was last paid from Staffordshire on the 7th of June. I was without a job or a contract for a week. I came to meet Van one day before the deadline of the Predator contract sign-in. Flew over to meet the club here. Signed on the 14th of June, the day before. And, um, and that's me, really. Never looked back since, to be honest. So you only got a chance to quickly look around the town, have, have a meal with the coaches, quickly pop to the stadium. And, and uh, that's kind of how my French adventure uh, kind of started and, and yeah. gone from there, really. Look, it's, it's obviously given you... It's, you know, a career in professional rugby has given you all these stories, places that you've lived. That sounds amazing. It sounds like, you know, from the, from an outside perspective, it seems like a dream job. Um, well, but I, I mean, go on, sorry, go on. Oh no, I was, was going to say, but uh, you know, obviously, it isn't it isn't always that way. I was going to ask you a wee bit about sort of you've obviously had a huge um, physical strain in your body, but yeah. something I always ask people as well is that is the psychological strain that rugby puts on you, and um, what's your experience been of that and um, uh, do you know? Do, do you do you get guidance and support in that regard, or could be, could more be done? Well, I think um, aside from the from the injury side, I always apart from this one, I talk about that. This injury is different. All the previous injuries, even when I redid my arm, I just thought, right, get the operation done. Um, I've had such. I always had such good responses to rehab. I was always confident of getting back in playing again. So. It was right. Next job, right? Give me my timeline. I need to know how long I'm going to be. Focus on the task. Work, work as hard as I can. Got back. Prove people wrong. Back to that chip on the shoulder. It wasn't to it was to the 2015 World Cup is when I was in the World Cup training squad. Didn't make the World Cup, which I kind of knew was going to happen. I knew it was coming, but I was told I was the first reserve. Or I was there if a lot got injured and poorly got injured against France. I didn't get called up. I didn't get a phone call about not getting called up. I found out from one of the players in camp text me and said, Mike McCarthy's just come in. Because I thought I was going to be called up. Joe never gave me a phone call to say, listen, we're going to call Mike instead of you. That was the one that hit me really, really hard. <clears throat> I never played for Ireland after that and after the World Cup warm-up matches. Um, but for the, that, was, that was tough. I was embarrassed because I told everybody I was, you know, first reserve and... You're watching games, not hoping anybody gets injured, but you know it's such a sport that they will. They did. Waiting for the phone call to come. Everyone's texting me saying, oh my God, you're going to be called up. It'd be awesome. Never came. Mike comes in. And just that embarrassment, I shouldn't really be embarrassed in front of friends and family. They don't really care, but but you take it to heart. Fellow professionals. That was tough for me. That was really, really tough. And, and, And looking back, you know, it was, it was a very, very difficult period of my life that, that yeah, September yeah. onwards of 2015, I, I didn't deal with it very well, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's tough, and uh, all the guys you speak to talk about that uh, not being selected, and 
uh, being overlooked at times when it, obviously you're you're expecting to get called up there. Um, and there there are these things that I suppose build resilience in players and 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 yeah. uh, I suppose taking the positive away from that. You, you, you know you you went on after that to to play at the for a number of years at the top level at club level anyway. So. Um, uh, one thing, one thing I was going to ask you about is sort of like that announcement towards the end, well, at the end of your career. Um, you seem like someone who um, is understated in some ways. It doesn't want to make a fuss about um, about things. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and uh, yeah. uh, you sort of talk about like people make these announcements, and it's um, all, all they want is a, a pat on the back and uh, and whatever. So was your, your announcement went went more in depth and tell me a bit more about that and and sort of your your thoughts on, on modern modern rugby and, and I was yeah, I was kind of in that headspace where I thought Do you know what I've got something off my chest as a I may as well just use the use the platform to 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 get out there really to tell you the truth and I think um, you know. I talked about rugby being, I used the statement, rotten to the core, and it was born out of the frustration with what they were doing, the RFU were doing to the championship, cutting their funding. And I think now this coronavirus has really given us an opportunity to see rugby in all its glory, or not so much glory. It really doesn't cover itself in, in, in any glory whatsoever. I think... Um, there's too many people that are just obsessed with lining their pockets um, and paying players just crazy money that the business is not even viable. And when something like this hits, which is tough for every business, almost 99% of businesses, of course, but rugby is nowhere even close to being sustainable. People are just, rugby clubs are running themselves into the ground on, on, on millions of pounds worth of debt each year. And um, paying one player one million pound, and playing an academy player twenty grand, he can barely feed himself, but expected to, you know, he's just, you know, I, I get it, you know, they, they do demand, and that's the market. But we've created this problem, and now we're looking at the. I think some clubs are probably going to go under because of this. I think it's going to go on much longer, and um, we really need to take a look at ourselves, as the rugby group of everybody who it might be of how we're, I saw a thing about James Haskell. I wouldn't be a massive listener of him, but I did see one that came up and he says, nobody's interested in rugby. And I thought to myself, I wonder if he's true. And I think he is because I think rugby's quite a niche following. Yeah. yeah. I think it really is. You're never compared to football. I get that. But I think when you're term, talking in terms of money in the general public, I don't really think that many people really are interested in rugby. So I think it's an upside down sport. I think for the risk reward that players put themselves in, in, in terms of health, um, and for the money they get out of it. And, and when I talk about money, I think I don't mean that everyone should be automatically paid more is what I'm saying. I just don't think it's fair. I yeah, just don't think yeah. that you can... And on, you go to football, and you say, "Oh well, Messi is a five hundred grand, a, excuse me, five hundred grand a week player, and Charlie Adams a ten grand a week player." You can see this disparity between it, right? I understand that. So Red Rad is a million pounder a, a year player, and and someone's 
But that Red Rider is still putting himself in the same amount of danger because it's such a physical sport. You don't have that physical limitations on football. Yeah. 20-year career, easy. Mm -hmm. This rugby stuff is... I I watch the stuff now and I think to myself, how the fuck did I do that for 15 years? Mm -hmm. I see the boy... I was doing a bit of coaching with my team before this started. I'm up close and I've been out seven months now, six months at a time. And the boys are running around smashing each other. I'm thinking... Not a chance. Not a chance. I'll be yeah. ever. I don't ever want to come back and play. Yeah. I can't anyway. I just. I just think we're going down a route where um, we've got to take a long, hard look at ourselves um, and how we deliver this product across the board, from wages to how it's packaged. And I think um, this unprecedented time within this. Mm-hmm. My statement was pre this, obviously, but this is a real key time in our lives that we'll never ever forget again. We could change the face of rugby and how we see and think and deliver rugby as a as a product and as yeah. an entity. We'll never get this chance again. Yeah. We yeah. can make it financially viable and change the way it's done and make it sustainable. Or yeah. we can just continue going and just just let clubs keep keep losing millions every year. Yeah. Well, I think um, I, I think you're right. It puts everything in perspective, doesn't it? The the uh, the situation that we're in now. Um I think you talked about it showing the worst side of rugby. It's, it's certainly showing the worst side of football. And not to I, I take any opportunity to, to have a dig at Liverpool, but no, I was, I, yeah, I, 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 saw I was. Ab- Do you know what? I was absolutely gutted, yeah. absolutely devastated to hear that. I really, really yeah. was. And I'm still waiting for it to change. I'm still waiting to Liverpool go. Oh no, it's because you know this and the other. But I was absolutely gutted. Yeah, 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 and I think it's angered a lot of people, and I think rightly so. And um, he talked there about there's parallels to be drawn between rugby and football in in many ways. I think you're right in that rugby is more of a niche following, and if it follows in the footsteps mm-hmm. of football, uh, it'll become uh, and probably already is uh, clearly from a business uh, perspective unsustainable. Um, from that perspective as well, you see the likes of Saracens and and what went on there. Um, and if, if Saracens knew what they were doing, yeah, there's not a person on this planet that would tell me any differently. Yeah, Nigel Ray may have been a really good guy and might be doing it out of the love of his heart, but he 100% knew what he was doing. Yeah, and we all knew for a number of years it was commonplace within that club. Yeah, it was only a matter of time. Yeah, I know. And we've seen cheating within rugby, Bloodgate, this money here. If I was extra chiefs who probably run the club better than anybody, they run it at a profit. They pay their players sustainably. It's all done within a certain parameter. They've been robbed, robbed of any of all those titles. They've been robbed. They'd be yeah. fucking fuming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and people are, and um, there has to be consequences for these things. And I suppose Saracens have been hit pretty hard, but also it doesn't. Uh, I mean, they they dined out on that success for years. Um, the, uh, winning the, the European Cup and, and the Premiership year in year out, and um, it, it does it does leave a bitter taste in the mouth, especially for the likes of, of Exeter. And um, you can't undo that. Uh, you can go back and say, "Oh, that, was, that wasn't fair," but at the same time, their names in the trophies. And, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I look back at that Leinster Saracens final, and Leinster, a ridiculous team, so well conditioned, so well coached. They've got structures throughout. They do it properly. They are top to bottom. And even if you think, I'm not going to say rejects. I'm not going to say we also have the reject. I'm just saying players that are you know not fitting at that time. 
they're some of the Ulster's best players. Yeah, yeah. That's how strong Leinster are. They're a joke. Mm. They're an absolute they, joke. Yeah. And they got hammered off the park against Saracens in that final. Mm-hmm. Saracens are just. Oh, they're they're another level. It's, aren't it's yeah. a different, different, different sport. And and if that's the that's the values of sport, you we all, we all because it's such a niche sport, we love rugby for the core values that we think it has. Yeah. The camaraderie, the togetherness, the family. You know, you meet another. If I met another rugby player in New Zealand, I didn't know anything about. He would probably take me in and give me a bed for the night. And just because you're part of that rugby family, that's the rugby value. Yeah. And then you see this. Yeah, uh, it's money that's corrupted. Um, and really, you, just go, yeah. you don't have to scratch that hard to really find it, to be honest. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, no, definitely. I think uh, money has had a, a huge effect on rugby, as you say. I think uh, uh, the public look at rugby players and go, oh, you're pretty, pretty well compensated. But we're talking about a very small percentage at the very top yes. level get extremely yeah. well compensated. Uh, and they can take that uh, massive physical toll on their body knowing that they can retire yeah. uh, quite happily and go on to do what they want. But the vast, vast majority of rugby players uh, end up injured at a, at a relatively young age when most people's careers are just kicking off. And yeah, 100%. Uh, um, that, that must be... That must be very frustrating to see the, the disparity uh, in, in the amount that people are getting paid and the amount that people are getting looked after as well at, at clubs. I think you know what you're getting into. I knew what I was getting into. There's an element of danger pay involved in rugby yeah. to a certain degree, but there's a lot of girls that don't get that danger pay. Yeah. You know, yeah. for the best part of my career, I was earning six figures. So I knew what I was getting into and I loved the lifestyle. It afforded me everything. What I'm saying is there's a lot. And, and when I, I'm retired now and then when my pay stops, so, you know, I'm going to have to swerve again because, I, you know, I have a little bit. But like you said, I'm not amongst that 5% that will literally not have to work again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, it's, yeah. It's different than football uh, where, number one, there's a far less chance of, even if you don't get a catastrophic injury, do you know, if I've read about your injury, it sounds fairly horrendous. Even if you don't get something like that, a lot of rugby players are battered they're just physically. They, they uh, struggle to do normal activities uh, because of the toll that it's taken on their bodies. Or, uh, as you say, like footballers um, uh, can can live on. Uh, well, I think, yeah, and I think if I've got a son who's five and he plays a bit of rugby over here, and I'm thinking to myself, do I want him playing rugby um, for his for for him growing up? Yeah, part of me does. I think it's one of the best sports in the world. Yeah, but there's nothing like it. Like I yeah. fell in love with, like I said to you at the start, for that reason. Yeah. But on the flip side, do I want to even come close to experiencing? Anything? I experienced no chance. And people go, "Oh, would you let your son go boxing?" No way. You think boxing is more dangerous than rugby? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it is. Maybe it isn't. I'm not too sure. Just because yeah. there's head injuries, of course. But you know, some of the injuries you see in the rugby lads. Fuck. It's it's on unpre- yeah it's it's probably unprecedented in terms of the sheer physical size of people and the speed yeah. that they're running out the, yeah, the, yeah. the athletes. Whereas you've got guys back in the day, uh, people actually tried to avoid contact. <laughs> yeah, um, which which has changed. Uh, now second rows were second rows were tall, fifteen stone. Yeah, you and know there may be six two, six three rather than exactly six, yeah, six, yeah, seven, yeah seven or eight, and yeah. uh, it's insane the the collisions that you see now. You wonder how people survive them. It's like getting hit by a car um, yeah. a number of times every game. So, yeah, I, I don't know how people do it. And as you say, 
there's I hadn't thought too much about it before. Do you know listen to you about the the length of the career? You, you've had a long career by anyone's standards. Like uh, the vast, you must have played with a lot of guys. You had seven and a half seasons also. You must have seen guys like David Pollock. Who, uh, he was the first one that sprung to mind. And, yeah. and we talk about getting luck. You know, Davy was probably totally as Ulster's captain. Probably the replacement for yeah. Rory, or maybe even above Rory. He was that next superstar. He'd yeah. gone through the old Irish age groups. Willie Falloon was there as well. Mm-hmm. But Chris Henry was probably, I'm saying this, probably behind the two of them. Davy got a really nasty injury, couldn't play. Then Chris and Willie battled it out, and you know Willie would be a bit more injured than Chris gone and went on to play for Ireland. You know, yeah. Chris Henry may have never been Chris Henry if it wasn't for those opportunities. Um, yeah, I mean. You look at the the guys like um, Michael Fatialofa that you see that success story now that he's he's managed to walk again and and stuff like that. But I, I look at um, I look at it now and I, I speak to ex professionals and they don't miss they they miss the change rooms. I'm I'm going to miss the change room. I yeah. miss the change room before and after a game. I miss the training ground. I miss the travel. I miss mm-hmm. talking to my mates I can trust. Um, going through the same things through life together. Um, with 40 different people it's, it's, it's unprecedented it's, it's amazing I'll miss it so much yeah. I will not miss the contact I won't miss the yeah. contact drills and training I won't miss getting my neck compressed I won't miss the injuries I won't miss the surgeries I won't miss the tablets um, the painkillers the emotional toll it takes on your relationships I won't miss any of that yeah, that's what uh, you've answered my question there. I was going to sort of ask, because um, I know there's so much positive. I know we've dwelt a wee bit on sort of the negative sides of the game. There's so much positive coming oh. from rugby in terms of the camaraderie, the community that it creates, even for fans Incredible. as well. Uh, I think a lot of people, uh, socially and psychologically, it, it does an enormous amount of good for people. Um, uh, just, uh, you know, uh, never mind as, as players, but for fans, I think people realise now what a huge part of their life it is whenever we, yeah. we don't have it, we take it for granted. Yeah. And um, I came over here and played 26 games in my first season there. I, and after being injured for the years previous, on and off, it was just amazing. Loved playing every single week. It was great. And I was hoping to do the same this year before I finished. But what it did do this year is not playing, is I've been able to go to the game as pretty much a supporter. And I didn't realise how much it means to people over here. And you don't. Until you're injured, you don't know how much it means. You don't. And it means everything. Yeah. Whether it be an Ulster here or, or wherever, people people, something, people hate their life. And they literally just wait until a Friday night, they can have a beer, relax and watch their favourite team. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and that's their life. And, you know, uh, it means so much to so many different people. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to... I, I've got a massive change in my mindset that I've not even come close to changing yet. I'm still training... Like I touched on my thing, I still train thinking, I, I, I generally do believe, sometimes, some part of me believes in July I'm going to go back into pre-season and start playing again. Yeah, and yeah. I've got to let that go. I don't know yeah. when the penny's going to drop. Yeah, You yeah. know, for me, it's been September since I've been injured. And the guys now who play in the Pro 14 or this league, or whoever my league might not play again, they're retiring. They never knew that game was their last game. Yeah. Much like myself. Yeah. They did it fit. So it's going, to be, it's going to be tough for a lot of players. This coronavirus has hit players in that way. And I've got to have a, a big shift in my mindset. That I'm no longer a player anymore. Yeah. I, still think I, I still believe I'm going to play. I still think I'll play in a couple of weeks. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, I'm sure it, it'll take it'll take time to get used to. And um, what you're talking about there in terms of how much it, it means to people, and that's what um, I find frustrating whenever uh, you're talking about the game changing it but it becomes very money driven it has over the past sort of well since the game's turned professional it's been yeah. a slippery slope towards uh what we see in football now the mercenary attitude as well and um it's frustrating as a fan you know uh these guys it hasn't happened so much at ulster um just because of the nature of things and the way players are centrally contracted and yeah like it that. does help but um it does help uh, it, it is frustrating to see that mercenary uh, uh, sort of style um, uh, become more prominent than rugby. So. Yeah, I think the IRFU model protects Ulster from that and the provinces. Yeah. Yeah. I think you have to get players vetted through that system where yeah. in England they can just sign who they want when they want. Yeah. You know, but, you, there is a, it, it does help a little bit. Yeah, I imagine it's frustrating for... for uh, English English fans and English clubs. Whenever you know, maybe they bring someone through the youth system and invest a lot in them, and then they, they go off and sign for someone else. But that's that's the nature of the game, and that's that's the way it's changing. And I suppose the, the, the question out of all of this is, if you were to change anything about rugby in terms of well, interpret that how you like. But if there was something that you could change, maybe it's the the way things are set up, the way things are financed, the way players are compensated. What would you what would you change? Yeah, I actually have been talking about that recently. I, I I thought to myself, I would get rid of. I think the the one thing we're dealing with now is the financial problem. So for me, I make it impossible for clubs to run on a two, three million pound, four million pound uh, a year loss and wait for the CVC money. And I'm only just talking about the Premiership clubs as a highlight. Um, I would have a structured wage system where you couldn't ever have a player more than £500,000 a year. You're only allowed a maximum of five players at that, at that cap. Mm-hmm. Then you'd probably drop down to have a group of players at 350. You'd then drop down, have a group of players at 200, drop down, have another group of players at 100. And then the minimum wage could then be brought up for guys that are in part of this squad. Yeah. You could have a 40-man squad guaranteed you could supplement that with five senior academy players that meant the guys at the bottom echelons of that 40 the minimum they could be paid maybe 40 grand a year this is just random figures yeah yeah senior academy that could jump in and supplement that team yeah yeah every single year the budget is exactly the same these budgets are not transparent in terms of you're earning x i'm earning something different but they are released to premiership rugby The, the the money is out there um, you're a 500 grand player, I'm a 350 grand player, and you're allowed five of them and seven of these and eight yeah. of these. Yeah. And, com- and completely run into that. And that would make coaches have to coach more because there's no difference in the budget. Yeah. You wouldn't have greedy agents undercutting, backstabbing, going behind people's backs, say, we see you as a 500 grand player. We have one slot as a second row as a 500,000 pound a year player. You're one of our marquee 500,000 pound a year players. Yeah. You cannot earn anymore. Yeah. It's impossible to earn anymore. Mm-hmm. You then have to coach. You have to create an environment within a team that's worth playing for. Mm-hmm. We're all off a level playing field there. They've, they're doing that in Formula One. They're going off of financial fair play. They're trying to do it in football, some sort of realm of financial fair play. It means you have to coach. You have to create an environment. You have to yeah. build from, from what you have. And the academy becomes incredibly important then. Yeah, I, I like, we continue I like going down. We're getting close to a transfer market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems you know, that way. It's, it seems and if, inevitable. If Bristol, yeah. if Bristol can be 
underpinned by Steve Lansdowne, who's a billionaire. Obviously, he's going to take a massive hit on this latest thing like everybody else. But Newcastle have had to chop all their wage, players' wages so they can only go on the government scheme. I mean... Yeah, yeah. I, I like you know, that. Rad Radler's paying a, a million a year. He could come up against a, a guy that's just coming from a championship by £25,000 a yeah, year. Yeah, it's mad, He could do it? that guy serious damage. Yeah, yeah, I know. He really could. Well, that's the thing. I, I suppose just when you're talking about, about that, I was thinking, do you know, a lot of these young guys, it's a bit like, not to go back to football too much, but... You get guys, um, there are so many stories of people who invest time and effort as, as young academy players who are then dropped by the club. It's an extremely ruthless environment. Rugby is different because not only are you dropped ruthlessly by the club and have to go and find something else, you've maybe foregone any sort of serious level of education or whatever. Yeah. Um, you've missed out in years of your life uh, and you have nothing to show for you, You've never made the big money. The difference in rugby is you're basically used as cannon fodder, I suppose, as a young player. You're put out to fill a shirt. Uh, maybe it's, uh, it's in a way, maybe it's in a way game to some uh, top tier French club and you just know you're going to lose. So you stick out yeah. a bunch of the young guys and you see it all the time. They're not, they're not being compensated to put their bodies on the and, line. And that's why there is a team binge use Instagram page made up because <laughs> you are called binge juice and you do occasionally get those guys that f- scrap like to make it out of that but is that really a growth mindset is that a growth mindset what we're looking at because you know you're in that group of players you're going fuck me this is going to be but it's okay if you play football you get beaten 5-0 you're not going to come off batting and bruised yeah, yeah. like going away to some back end of nowhere in France getting your head kicked in for 20 grand a year, losing 50 nil, you're thinking, all right, well, I'll just protect the senior players for your benefit, shall I? You know, yeah, I, yeah. I didn't put my best foot forward at all, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's one gripe you'd say with, if a player was leaving, did you give him the best opportunity to show his best ability? Did you, when you rotated the team, did you rotate 12 players or did you rotate three? You know, because otherwise he's got no chance. Yeah. There's so many players that's happened to yeah. So many players, yeah. so many, yeah. um, loads and loads, and it will continue to happen. And I think maybe that wage structure will change a little bit. For every player that makes a professional football, I think it's one in 10,000. One yeah. in 10,000. Yeah. I think if you have an academy contract at rugby, you do, you're a decent enough player, you've got a pretty decent chance. I, yeah. I wouldn't even know the odds, but you're pretty, one in 15, one in 20, you've got a pretty decent chance of making a yeah. professional yeah. But even still, do you know, uh, you're talking about how much uh, sort of luck comes into it as well as hard work. And you don't want to create that sort of pyramid scheme uh, thing where a bunch of people are scrapping around for uh, yeah. little to no money, wrecking themselves uh, in the hope that they'll one day get a massive payday. Because, um, yeah, that's... That's when I first started. I think it stopped a little bit. I was in 2004, 5, 6, whatever it might be at Gloucester. Rock up at training. I was on... F- Nine and a half grand a year, my very first ever contract. And you were just there as kind of you were never going to play, you're not even close to playing. You'll play with a bunch of demotivated senior players that are playing on a Monday night because they've been pissed, fucked off, not playing for the first team. And you're scrapping every single day in training. Yeah, yeah. But, but it made me the player in part who I was. Yeah. But it did kiss goodbye to a lot of other players. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So, so exactly. You're yeah. the, uh, the the their success stories and guys who get Maybe, to tell this yeah. story. Um. Uh, yeah. But there are so many that we don't hear from who, you know, I would never think think to interview because that you, you haven't heard of them because they they just haven't made it. Um. Uh, and obviously that's uh, 
uh, you know that, that that must be very tough to take for those guys. Um, and I, I suppose on that note, you know, you're transitioning out of rugby now. Uh, sort of finally, the thing that I want to ask you is is what are you what are you gonna what do you plan to yeah. do now? Yeah, that is the ultimate question. I think everybody asked me that from when I turned thirty. They were like, "You know, what are we gonna do?" Yeah. Um, my answer kind of kids are going crazy downstairs. My answer remains the same, really. Um, I don't know. Um, we are, as a family, applying for two new children because <laughs> my two are crazy. No, we're actually applying for our visas to move to America. Oh, brilliant! So when we submitted that application. Um, you know, we, we hope the answer is going to be yes. And, and there will be a period from when that's submitted to a yes that we can move over there. I don't know how long it's going to be, nine months, a year, or whatever. So we've got to decide whether that's best spent here in France or whether we want to go back to the UK. Um, so I had a previous role with the club here, actually, since I finished playing and for the season that was going to continue this year as a kind of a bridge between the playing group and, and, and the staff. I was doing a little bit of coaching helping the players get ready for the weekend, travel with the squad and be around the team. I'm trying to use a bit of my experience to, to, to bring some of the guys that they felt that we didn't, we've kind of lacked a bit of experience this year with, with me not being there. So that potential role and, and, and stepping into the coaching next year might, might be there for me. Um, I'm not 100% sold on it, to tell you the truth. I'm not sure if coaching suits me. Um, I think I'd be more um, uh, better as a role as a, a GM, if you like, more dealing with players at the personal level and more of a contractor level. Yeah. Um, I see a lot of coaches these days, they put in about 80 hour weeks and 60 of them are spent maybe even more in front of the laptop. They're yeah. non-stop in front of the laptop and they're stressed, yeah. losing their hair and you know they're, they're looking, the whole perspective on rugby's changed, they've become very much more cynical. Uh, I'm not too sure I want to go down that route to tell you the truth, but we'll see. Um, what living in France does afford me is what they call a chômage, so I can earn uh, a wage and look and re-educate and, and look for a job. So I think I'll take the role on if, the, if it's still there with the club. Um, and it will give me a bit of time just to yeah. breed myself into that environment to see if it's for me. I think I'm lucky to do that. Yeah. Uh, and then hopefully if that is the case, I can and start making some contacts in America and, I mean, God knows what's going to happen with this coronavirus fallout, yeah, to tell you the truth, yeah. and, and whether the MLR gets back up and whether we get accepted. and It's all a little bit up in the air for us as a family, but... Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Ex exciting times. Who, uh, yeah, there is. Yeah. You know, we've got a rough plan. Um, these things can change and we can adapt as we go forward, but um, we're really happy. We absolutely love it here. We yeah. absolutely love living here. Um, it's a beautiful place to live in, in Brittany, in South Brittany, so... My eldest son's five and he speaks French now. So there's, a, there's tons of positive that's come out of this. So, yeah. you know, I hope those pitfalls that we talked about, about maybe the big word depression or psychological things, I, I hope I'm going to be able to deal with them head on because I, I feel they're going to come in, yeah. in some form. I'm not too sure how they're going to manifest itself because I'm still kind of injured, really. I, I still don't feel if I, as if I could play. I think if I ever did get fit, I'd be thinking maybe I could, I might be missing it. So there's that financial and there's the elements that a lot of my players that also have suffered from, a lot of my former colleagues have suffered from. Um, so hopefully I can, I can negotiate my way around that and, and not suffer from that myself because I think it's something serious. Yeah. Uh, I think you're lucky if you, if you can manage to find your career straight away. Not everybody does and sometimes it takes a number of years. So um, we'll see, we'll see. Yeah. But for the foreseeable, I see myself living here in France and, we're enjoying it and um, 
and hopefully, uh, I, I'm hoping to get back to Ulster next season and, and get around the team for a little bit and, and, and see a few games and stuff and, and Brilliant. try and enjoy Brilliant. it as a, as, a, as a fan now. You know? Yeah, yeah, and not with a chip on my shoulder anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. There's nothing better than, as you say, you know, you can relax into it now, and um, uh, there's, I'm sure there's a massive difference between being involved as a player and being involved as a fan. As a fan, it's a great way to to relieve stress at the end of a busy week, and um, uh, yeah, I'm sure, uh, as you say, it'll be hard for the first few while watching. Yeah, thinking I, think I, I, I could still be out exactly, there. Yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm 35, and I'm It's over. It's over. You know, just like the Sopranos, it's over. It's done. Forget about it. You know, it's it's over. So <laughs> I can go watch a game, enjoy myself, not have to compare myself against other players. And, yeah, yeah. You know, just be happy for guys to be successful and not having to have a chip on my shoulder because I'm still competing. You know, it's, it's going to be a nice feeling, and I can't wait for it.